Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Graham Foster is PM at Orbis Investment Management. The fund runs about $34 billion. I've been intrigued by Orbis for quite a while. They have a truly unique approach to investing. They're also owned by a foundation, something that's rather rare in the finance industry. And they also have a unique approach to fees. When they're generating alpha, when they're outperforming their benchmark, they take a performance fee. And when they're not generating alpha, when they're underperforming, they actually return fees. I don't think anybody else in the entire industry does anything like that. Fortunately for them, they've been outperforming for decades, so it isn't very often they have to return fees. Uh, This is one of those really intriguing models. I've I've written about them before. I've interviewed other partners at Orbis before. They're, They're really an intriguing firm. I found this conversation to be absolutely fascinating, and I think you will too. With no further ado, my discussion with Graham Foster, PM and partner at Orbis Holdings. So you have a fascinating background. I want to get into that before we start talking about asset management. A degree in mathematics from Oxford, a doctorate in mathematical epidemiology and economics from Cambridge. What is that? (laughs) Mathematical Uh, epidemiology, I'm assuming that's probability and statistics of viral disease growth. That's exactly right. So I, I did a math degree at Oxford, which is more pure math. Um, and then I was looking for something more applied. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, pure math can be very theoretical and detached from the real world, uh, and it's getting worse. It gets further and further away the deeper you go. And so I wanted to move into something useful. And mathematical epidemi- epidemiology is the study of disease spread through modeling. You know, how do you understanding the spread? How do you treat the spread? When do you treat the spread? You know, things like the vaccination programs and uh, it's all the mathematics around that. So it was very relevant then and even more relevant recently uh, with all of the, you know, the infectious diseases we've been seeing. So, so let's talk, test your theoretical mathematics. I, I was, for something wholly unrelated, I'm diving into some set theory and I come across a paper that makes the claim that Some infinities are larger than other infinities. Now, my naive assumption was infinite meant infinite. Is that the sort of stuff you were studying undergraduate? That was uh, a number. That was number theory, pure number theory. And that was one course I did not take. But uh, that is a fascinating field, that's for sure. Uh, There's many different types of infinities. (laughs) Apparently. Um, It's, uh, I just assumed if it's infinite, it's infinite. And whether it's all numbers or even numbers. Yeah, that, that is an incredibly complex area of mathematics mm-hmm. to the point where they, you, you spend weeks and weeks proving that one isn't equal to zero, right? That's how fundamental you get right, right back to the axioms. 
And you do a lot of work with Infinity. And then economics, which is a little bit squishier. What made you add economics to your to your graduate degree? Well, that was really an add-on. But you know, if you you're thinking about the spread and control of disease, um, given this is academia, mm-hmm. you know, the big focus is on how do you do it. It's not really on what does it cost, right? Right. Uh, Which some people actually care about. Uh, some people do, right? That is that's quite a relevant question. Mm-hmm. Um, so. A big part of the thesis, which we sort of started, you know, around one year in, after getting the kind of the basis right, was uh, how do you treat, um, this was this was in agricultural systems, so how do you treat disease, uh, when do you treat, and how much is it going to cost, and it's basically an optimization problem. Hmm. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about fees and costs later. <laughs> so let's talk about your first jobs out of school. Uh, I'm assuming mathematical epidemiology wasn't the career you followed, what'd you do after Cambridge? Yeah, I mean, uh, academia um, should be meritocratic. Should be. Should be, right? It's a a little more political than that. It's very, very political. And, um, you know, the deeper you go within a field, the less the people who are funding the research understand about the research. Uh, So it gets very bureaucratic, and Mm -hmm. you spend a lot of your time, in my view, trying to build your funding to do your next project. And so, you know, one reason for looking for an exit, if you like, from academia, which has its positive elements, right? Academia, you get the feeling, the fulfillment of Mm -hmm. uh, doing something that's, uh, you know, good for the world, in theory. Theoretically. (laughs) Um, So, but one, that, that, that sort of looking for something meritocratic was one, reason for like and and I, I started during my phd getting into uh, game theory and uh, decision making under uncertainty and all these interesting areas which were a bit tangential um although maybe not so tangential i read something you had mentioned uh Shlansky's book the theory of poker a professional poker player teaches you how to think like one Obviously, decision-making under uncertainty with probabilistic odds and an inherently unknowable future. Is that poker? Is that investing? Sounds like both. It's the same thing, right? It's the same skill set. And, and, and so you know, during my PhD, I started playing a lot of cards. It was Omaha and poker and gin and then backgammon. All these games are interesting from the sense that um, luck or uncertainty – play a big role and that's interesting I thought that was that's an interesting element of those games and and one of the things that drew me into that wasn't just the intellectual uh, side of it how do you make decisions under uncertainty it's um, the uncertainty itself mm-hmm. and what that does um, and you know if you if you're a chess player it's almost pure skill if you're a poker player I think it's you know maybe 40% skill 60% luck over short periods and what that does is it draws in a lot of people to the game that maybe you know don't appreciate that that kind of the the rigor that goes into the decision making mm-hmm. it's like people who play the lottery why do people play the lottery they know it's a ne- negative expected value game right. do they maybe they do maybe they don't but they see the 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 potential to win the big the big uh, jackpot Right, and they also, you know, they get little wins here and there through the right. lottery. Right, it, it gives them a buzz. It's it's why do people go to the casino? They gamble. So so game playing with large elements of uncertainty draw people in, 
who aren't necessarily suited to the rigor of the activity. And if you think about what's similar to poker in that regard, it's investing, very, very similar. Uh, massive levels of uncertainty, in fact, more uncertainty in the investment world than in the poker world because you're making these long-term decisions mm-hmm. and getting very little feedback from, from your actions until years and years down the road. So it draws people in. So they'll have big wins. You know, They'll buy a stock, it'll go up. I can do this. And they keep going and they keep playing and they keep right. going. And so it's, it is a game that, a game, it's a field that drives a lot of inefficiency. And I think that inefficiency is sustainable. And so that's, uh, you know, one of the reasons that drew me in. The other reason that drew me in was, you know, I think how the relationship we, you and I, everybody has with money mm-hmm. is heavily dictated by their upbringing. For upbringing. sure. And so if you have spent, you know, your childhood making compromises because you're always bumping up against the barrier of not not having enough money, it changes the way you look at money for 100%. your whole life. And so I didn't want to spend my life in academia where, you know, the money's not bad, depending on what you do. But you, I would always be in that situation of sort of bumping up against that barrier. It limits your choices in life if you don't, if you have that constraint. No doubt about that. So I love where you've taken this. And I want to, I want to stay with the idea of poker and casino and, and uncertainty. Some people look at a casino as entertainment and hey, we're gonna spend X dollars, pick a number, 500, 2000, whatever it is. And that's, you know, that's what a night out at a, at a Broadway play would cost. Here's what I'm gonna spend that night. I, I think that's a small percentage of people and other people, it, it's not a coincidence that the one-armed bandits, the, uh, the, those machines that pay out the most with the lights and the bells are right by the entrances, <laughs> sure. there to, to capture people. Um, Lotto was kind of fascinating because I always thought you paid $2 and we're coming up on $900 million as we speak is the current lottery. $900 million. Yeah, they, they changed <laughs> the lottery a couple of years ago. So there are some blank numbers in it in order to create these billion-dollar payouts. And they go on longer and longer and obviously more profitable for mm. uh, the states that run mm. the lottery. But to me, it's like you pay $2 and you get to fantasize about what you would do with a couple of hundred million dollars. That's the $2 that the lottery is worth. For me, I don't think the average person who's plunking down 20 or 100 bucks every week thinks of it the same way. I think they're just junkies at this point and very addictive manipulation of, of dopamine for, for people. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, and I mean, it, it, it's two sides of the same coin, really, uh, because you know, you're, you're paying your $2 and you're dreaming of the big jackpot. There's, a, there's an element of that in, in your, in your right. uh, you know, pulling the lever. I used to go to casinos when I was in college and I would see people, they were almost, they would have these cards and it would be the membership card for the casino and it would be attached to their belt and it would be plugged in to the slot machine and it would look like they were one and the same, right? They were connected by uh, a... <laughs> connected a by feeding to Yeah, right? that's right. And they would sit there all day, zombified. That's an addiction. That's absolutely an addiction. Uh, but it's the same um, mentality of that little buzz you get when you win something or the dreaming of the big payout. Right. And I think the lottery is fascinating because I'm sure we'll talk about this, but we did a study recently where we took a thousand investors, hypothetical investors, and we said, okay, if they've got a 50 year time horizon um, in terms of their investment time horizon, 
and you're simulating a return profile from, let's right. say, the S&P 500's bell curve of returns over the last 100 years. So you're, you're sampling your returns each year for these 1,000 investors over the next 50 years. And you see a, a wealth path for each of those investors. And what you get at the end is a very, very um, uneven uh, distribution of wealth. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a function of returns. That's a function of uh, the capitalism. It's a function of log normal returns that we see right. in, in stock markets. And it's exactly the same. You see that exactly the same nonlinear wealth distribution in real life. Mm-hmm. It's a very uneven outcome, right? right? Very, very wealthy people, and a lot of you know own. What is it? Point one of the world own fifty percent of the wealth, or something? Just some right. crazy number. That is a function of capitalism. It's not a. It's not a bug. It's part of the system. And I think it's an essential part of the system and a little bit like the way the lottery, you see these big, big payouts right at the top. Right. You need to see them or you won't play. <laughs> and you need to, it needs to be the 900 million and you need to see the winner and you need to see them change their life and all of the, the, the joy and in inverted commas they get from that. That's why you play because you see that big payout. And we see Elon Musk and we see Warren Buffett and we see these people at the top of the capitalist pyramid and we think, huh, play the game because we can see them, they're very visible. And I think capitalism, a big function of capitalism is having those big winners and then everyone, you know, wants to you know, take part. And that's so, how it's so correct my bias, because when I look at lottery players, um, your odds are more likely that you'll be hit by lightning than winning the lottery. Um, and I see the that same fat head, long tail distribution in capitalism. Maybe my bias is is just because I've been lucky in my career, but... It seems like winning in capitalism is easier than winning in the lottery. And I don't mean being a, a billionaire. Run down the list. Musk, Gates, Arnott. Go through all the people, LVMH, Bernard. Go down everybody who's a billionaire. Uh, yeah, that's a little bit of uh, marketing for capitalism. But go to school, do well in a profession. You can have a fairly comfortable life without a whole lot of risk. Uh, assuming you have just a modicum of skills and, and diligence. 100%. So the, on the lottery side, it's pure randomness. Mm-hmm. Okay? And it's a negative EV game. right? You, every time you play, you lose a, little, lose a bit of money in probability space. Right. Uh, if, you are, if you're playing cards, you're playing poker, there's more skill. And if you're very good at it, you can eke out, win, a positive EV um, outcome and grow your wealth in a very lumpy fashion. In capitalism, it's the same, right? There's a lot of skill, there's a lot of luck, and you, you, if you work hard and you do everything you could possibly do, you probably climb the ladder, and you can push yourself a little bit to the right in that distribution of wealth over time. Second quartile is not unattainable. Absolutely not. No, that's right. Uh, but I mean, oh, and it, and it's you know the pie grows as well. The more people work, the more productive they are. Um, is the other element to it? Really, quite interesting. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. 
And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So you mentioned the 50-year the study. I'm kind of intrigued by your thoughts on investor longevity. And, and this quote I pulled of yours is, delivering excess returns over long periods of time in order to achieve extraordinary results as an investor is, is your focus. All right, how, how does one do that? Sounds easy. Just so outperform the market over decades <laughs> and you're a winner. It's... Um it sounds incredibly easy, and if you if you write it down on paper, you can run the numbers. It's there. It exists. It's clear. Three things that matter. Number one, longevity. I talk about that study. That was a, a study of randomly selecting returns from the S and P five hundred, and you and, and that that group of one thousand investors gives you that very nonlinear outcome in terms of wealth. Mm-hmm. What that tells you is if you change your inputs a little bit, like you said, around if you work hard, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you can push yourself a little bit to the right on that wealth distribution. If you do that, because it's nonlinear, you can get you can get big, big improvements in your end wealth, massive improvements. Uh, so there are really three key inputs to that. One is longevity, right? Just sticking with it. Warren mm-hmm. Buffett, what's the statistic? Ninety-five percent of his wealth is generated after the age of sixty-five. Impressive. Impressive, because he's stuck at it, right? I mean, he's pretty smart as well. He never tapped into his capital to go uh, get on the hedonic treadmill. He's been just let it just let it over compound time. over time. You know, watches his spending and uh, just stays in the game. Another good ex- if you, if the the best example of this is endowments here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal institutions, and they're set up to be perpetually around. They stick around. So if you take the Met Museum, I'm sure you've been to the Met sure. Museum here in, in New York. Their endowment, I think, is around five to six billion. Right. Phenomenally large number for a single institution in Central Park. And, you know, I'm sure they're a very intelligent and diligent investment committee. But the key, th- the key thing for them has been longevity. You know, 130 years of compounding has got them to where they are today. Stick around is the big is you know that's the key. The the rule to be tax exempt in the U.S. is you have to disperse five percent of the uh, foundation, and if you look at long term returns for stocks and bonds, that's not a tough target to make. You give out five percent, you don't have to pay any tax, and just let the rest ride. Exactly, it's that, a great that's structure. That's not a bad. Uh, I think the Guardian also has a foundation that owns it. Um, that has a few billion dollars. And Rolex, a lot of people don't realize, is owned by a private foundation. The founder gifted everything to the foundation and same sort of situation. Those have compounded over the centuries and have managed to amass a huge amount of, of capital. It's, I mean, there's no, it's just simple. It's just math. 
stick to it over long periods of time. And it's much harder in practice because you have to put that longevity into your process. The second is excess returns. Mm-hmm. If you can just increase your excess returns a little bit each year, massive difference. It makes a massive difference over 50, 60, 70 years, even just a percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, our sister company in South Afri- Africa have done 8% above the benchmark wow. for 50 years. That's insane. So that's a 300 to 400 time times sort of out- improvement in your end wealth. Phenomenal um, amount of compounding over a long period of time. And the third, the one that nobody talks about is risk management. Mm-hmm. Risk management. And so that's not just we talk about risk management in terms of buying at a big discount to intrinsic value and then that gives you that capital sort of buffer uh, you know the last thing you want to do is buy above intrinsic value because then you know that's where you get capital impairment um, but the big you know the thing the risk thing that we don't talk about that people should talk about is is just variance mm-hmm. volatility it's people say oh volatility you can just it just goes up and down that's fine um but it makes a big, big difference to your long-term outcomes if you can just avoid those big losses. Especially if you have to put money to work on a regular basis. Especially, exactly. Yeah. That, then the volatility and, and the valuation makes an enormous difference. It makes an enormous difference. And so when you run that simulation of, and you get that distribution of wealth, what you notice about the people at the top end is they avoid those big negatives. Because mm-hmm. if you lose 50%, and you've got to double to get right. back to where you were. And if you're compounding at 7% a year, which is what markets have done, it takes you about 10 years to get back to where you were. <laughs> That's a long time. It's a long time. And so watching your downside is very important. So those three things, longevity, a little bit of excess return, and, uh, and risk management would be the key. So let's talk a little bit about Orbis and what makes it so special. You joined in 2007. What led you there? Uh, so, I mean, it was interesting because the background I had in mathematics – uh, I really had a decision to make. Do you go quantitative route or fundamental route? And it might you know, surprise you to uh, imagine that I thought the future was more in, on the fundamental side. And uh, I came to that conclusion because if you think about what the quant side does and what the fundamental side does, they're both trying to find the signal in the noise. Signal in the noise. There's all this noise, all this noise, all this noise. What's the signal? What's the core signal? Right? That's absolutely what the quant teams are doing around the world. What the quant funds are doing is they're analyzing tons and tons of data looking for the, the, the little signal that drives price moves and, and hence that's how they generate their returns. As I thought about you know what, what is going to sustain over the long term, what is the ultimate signal in markets? What is the ultimate signal? And for me, what is a stock? What is a bit what is an equity? It's a piece of a business. You own a piece of a business. Right. And so the ultimate signal in terms of determining where a price goes over the long term is the value of that business. That's the signal. Right? That's a signal that won't go away because it's the base of the whole you know, efficient allocation of capital. It's the base of the whole market. It's not the little signals that you're trying to pick up day to day to figure out where a price is going to go. Uh, that's, that's the thing that should sustain. So that's what drew me to the fundamental side, thinking the fundamental side will sustain over long periods of time. Now, the fundamental side can adapt. It can bring in more and more technology to help it to assess that core variable, which is intrinsic value, mm-hmm. which is the true underlying value of the business. And I think that's what will happen. Um, I don't. It's, it's interesting as to why the quant side doesn't try to figure out what intrinsic value is. Um, and I think the problem with it is 
the prices move much, much faster than the intrinsic value of the business. In order to figure out what the value of the business is, you have to see it evolve. You have to see its cash flow come through over years and years and you're years and years. You're getting the data on a quarterly basis. Exactly. And if you're in a quant fund and your clients say, you know, you've underperformed for the last three quarters and I don't quite understand the black box, how do you retain, how do you drive that alignment between the client and the business? And, and so you need shorter term returns. You need less volatility so that you can't sustain it. So I think that's why the quant side doesn't focus on that fundamental side too. So that's, you know, why did I choose Orbis is because if I looked at, when I looked at Orbis, when I looked at this sister company, Alan Gray, which goes back to 1973, you know, they'd sustained this long, very long period of excess performance, six, seven, eight percent excess return over the market over very long periods of time. And they'd done that, you know, at Alan Gray, they'd done it for 34, 35 years. At Orbis, they'd done it for sort of 16, 17 years when I joined. Uh, and very few companies can sustain performance over that length of time with it being a pure fluke. <laughs> right. so, isn't that, uh, so the fascinating part was what, you know, what drove that, and that's what drew me in. And you know, when I went to interview at Orbis versus other firms, they're just so different in the way that they interviewed. It wasn't, you know, they were trying to pull out not just IQ. I got a ton of IQ questions, right? You go right. to interviews, it's like, can you answer this puzzle? Tell me about this mathematical thing. It's all IQ. But investing is, I don't know, 20% IQ? Uh, IQ is table stakes. It's table, what, absolutely. Right? Yeah. It's a lot more than just much raw more than intelligence. That. And you look at what did Warren Buffett say, you give away IQ points so you can get some of these other things because the other things are even more important. <laughs> you think about two people can look at the same data and come to very different conclusions. And that's rationality. That's judgment. How do you assess judgment? That's a different thing to IQ. That's uh, you know unbiased assessment of data is a different thing. Right. So that's your decision making, and that's how we try to pull that out at interviews. What about emotional intelligence? The biggest returns you can make are at the most extreme points in markets. It's like sitting down at a poker table. There's one hand a night that really matters. You need to make the right decision in that hand, and that dictates whether you go home happy or you go home sad. And it's exactly the same in markets, and you need a very level, unemotional, you know, uh, way of going about things, uh, very, uh, and and to be able to make good decisions at those extreme moments is absolutely critical. Those three variables: IQ, RQ, EQ, intelligence, rationality, and emotional intelligence. And so that's what Orbis was trying to draw out. You can't draw it out or interview. So that that's where you have the the systems we have in place to assess people over time, what they're good at, what they're not good at. Uh, but that's really what drew me to the firm. Huh, really, really quite intriguing. So, uh, so your fee structure is very different. When you outperform the market, you take a performance fee based on that outperformance above beta. What happens when you underperform the market? We refund the fee. So what happens is, let's say you outperform by 5% in the first six months of the year. That fee on the performance that we generate for our clients, a proportion of that outperformance goes into a bucket or, a, or an escrow account, if you like. And then if we subsequently underperform by 5%, let's say, over the, over the next six months, so you're flat on the year, the client shouldn't have paid a fee. Right. Right. So, and that is the case. So we re refund the feedback from the bucket and goes back to the client. And this isn't a theoretical construct. This is literally the cash is pulled aside, held in escrow on the client's behalf. And you guys have been doing this just about 20 years. Just about 20 years, yeah. So it leads to much stronger alignment with the client. It has a lot of positive outcomes. Uh, number one is it reduces the volatility a bit. We talked about the importance mm -hmm. of risk management and volatility. When we're underperforming, we're refunding the fees. That reduces the volatility to an extent. 
It also aligns clients and improves client behavior because one of the key things, another, another, another problem with the industry is it's all very well saying you can outperform the market. But what you have to be able to do is outperform on a dollar weighted basis. So that's a combination of you doing good things and generating returns, but also the client acting in a way that's not pro-cyclical, i.e. not investing more money after good performance and pulling out after bad performance. And it's chronic in the industry to see the dollar-weighted return for clients be much below the actual return of the funds that they invested. There was a Wall Street Journal um, article a couple of years ago about John Paulson, who whose funds had just crushed it during the financial crisis. They were short mortgages. They were short derivatives. They put up outrageous returns when they were a relatively small funds. And then all this cash flows in, and now they're running $40 billion buying gold. And not only are they not outperforming, they're pretty substantially underperforming, assuming I'm remembering this um, article right. It might not even been the. It might have been Barron's. I don't remember where I read it. But the net take was exactly what you're saying. On a dollar weighted average, net net, his fund was a money loser over its career, even though it put astonishing numbers up in the beginning of its its life when it was you know a billion or two, not twenty, thirty, forty. I, I apologize if I'm getting the precise. Um, source wrong, but it was a pretty substantial. Yeah, that's a he- common, very common story. Really, really common. And it's, how do we avoid that? How do we avoid that? You build alignment into the into everything you do. You try to build alignment. So you you're trying to find clients that really understand you. Number one, so that they know the type of volatility that they're going to get. They're not going to make you know when when we we get to we get to those inevitable tough periods. They understand that, they recognize it, and you know we're always communicating with them to sort of help them through those periods. And the second is the fees. You know, If you're refunding fees to clients in those periods of tough performance, that really does align you. They say, okay, you're suffering, we're suffering, that's okay. <laughs> Everyone's suffering. Um, and uh, and you, you get a much stronger result in terms of clients sticking with you through those cycles. How, how substantial are, are the fee refunds? Is it is it a meaningful amount of money. How how big a difference does this make to clients who are who are happy that they've outperformed for a few quarters and now they're looking at a few quarters of underperformance? I mean, it's uh, to the ex- to the extent that uh, well, it really depends on the extent to which we've outperformed. Because mm-hmm. uh, if we've outperformed a lot by a lot, there's a there's a point where the firm itself needs to take some cash flow sure. <laughs> to keep the lights on. Um, but you know, in regular cycles, a little bit of outperformance, a little bit of underperformance, you're just refunding that fee. Huh? Re- really, really interesting. So this uh, should be taking the industry by storm. Everybody else should be stealing your idea. How how widely dispersed is the concept of fund managers returning a percentage of the fees when they underperform? Well, we, when we put this in place, we thought this was it. The floodgates were going to open. Right. Everyone was going to follow. And the reason why they follow is it's such a tough thing for a manager to do. And so the client, you know, we should should get a lot of uh, uh, clients sort of saying, okay, finally, (laughs) an aligned fee. And it would be so popular with clients that uh, it would be very difficult for other managers not to follow. Um, And we've not seen that, which is interesting. And I think one of the reasons is it's very difficult for the manager to sustain that type of fee. 
mm-hmm. uh, because you're transferring the volatility from the client to the manager. Right. So it means the manager has to do things like reserve. It has to be a stronger balance sheet, and therefore you're not you're not paying out dividends to partners. So you have to make that decision to reserve, um, and you, you know you're just taking on more volatility as a business. Uh, I've also been kind of astonished at seeing some pretty famous fund managers go on TV and and refuse to admit error. This is a drawdown. Ah, we were a little early, or whatever it is. No one comes out and says. Oh, we were wrong about this. Uh, how significant is that a factor in getting a fund management company to say, "Hey, we stunk the joint up, and here are your fees back for this quarter"? I mean, it's just enormous. Uh, and I th- you know, one of the key things as a, an investment firm is you have to recognize your errors, mm-hmm. and you have to learn from them, and you have to have a robust system internally to. Uh, make sure that you know those biases, those errors you're making are picked up and addressed so you can do better in the future. And I think if anything, uh, we are on, on the other side, so we're too, we're too explicit about the errors we make. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, so, I mean, it, but it is endemic in the industry because the industry is incentivized to grow assets and hence admitting errors is not something that you want to do on TV. Let's talk a little bit about some of your strategies. Um, You have three separate strategies I'm familiar with, global equity, global with exclusions, and global balance. Tell us a little bit about the approach. Am I I summing them up uh, correctly, more or less? Yeah, so we're really focused in terms of what we do with equity investors typically. Mm -hmm. Uh, So a company analyst, we look for intrinsic value of businesses, we look to buy at a significant discount. Our main product, our flagship is Global. That's been running since 1990. We actually have a a market neutral hedge fund associated with that, Mm -hmm. which is uh, really beta neutral. Market neutral meaning long short or? It's long the stocks we like and short market indices. So a very, very simple way to extract the alpha plus the cash rate. Uh, from the strategy. Uh, so those are the two of the longest standing strategies. Then we launched the Japan strategy, which, you know, there's very interesting things happening in Japan now in 1998. We've got an EM strategy. We've got an international strategy, which we launched in 2009, which is non-US. Those would be the main ones. We do have multi-asset strategies called Balanced, which we launched in 2014-15. Balanced well. stocks and bonds? Stocks or? and bonds. Stocks and bonds and others where you can hold commodities and mm-hmm. currencies and things in there. Speaking of commodities, they seem to be doing pretty well. And here we are about to start the fourth quarter of 2023. What do you, what do you, how do you approach commodities? If you're bottom up fundamental equity investors, commodities is a totally different beast. Yeah, commodities are tricky, right? But what you can do in terms of as an equity investor, you can say, what is a normal sort of commodity price deck for Mm -hmm. your business? And then say, how much free cash flow can that business generate? On that, on that typical price of oil or gas or whatever it is you're looking at. Uh, so that's one of the you know, things we're looking at is, what is a normalized pricing? What sort of free cash flow can you generate? And how can you grow from that base? And that gives you a rough value for the business. The commodity industry is very fruitful because it's so volatile. Mm-hmm. So you get massive swings in the price of the shares. You get massive swings in the market cap of the companies. And uh, you don't get that much swing in the true underlying value in the businesses. So um, that's been a, an area that we've been investing in for a long period. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. 
and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Let's talk a little bit about unpopular or ignored stocks. How do you define those and how do you go about finding them? Uh, So this word contrarian is interesting, right? Because we, we talk about contrarian investing and everyone wants to be a contrarian. I love that line. Uh, everyone wants to be looking in areas that nobody else is looking and, and um, buying into fear, selling into greed. And, you know, a better way, I think, to describe what we do is just differentiated thinking. So not, not necessarily looking for things that are bombed out, although that can be very fruitful in terms of, you know, uh, thinking about which areas are potentially uh, oversold or, you know, there's too much fear around them. We, you know, the a more fruitful way is looking for apathy. People have just lost interest, or uh, just a differentiated view on a business. Uh, that's how I describe our style: is just assessment of intrinsic value. So that's deep company work. So if you're looking at intrinsic value, does that make it easier to determine? Hey, this stock is inexpensive for a good reason, and this stock is inexpensive because people are failing to see the value there. Meaning some. Some stocks are cheap for a reason, and others are cheap because people seem to be missing the underlying value. Well, that's, I mean, our job is to figure out the difference between those two. So, so how do you do that? One of the key things, one of the differentiators potentially of the firm is that all of our analysts run paper portfolios. So they're, uh, all of our analysts are working in niches. They could uh-huh. be a Japan analyst or UK analyst or financials analyst. And their job is really to know the companies well. Tear them to pieces build them back up again, figure out what they're worth. And through that process, they determine which stocks are potentially mispriced. And then then they recommend a list of those into a paper portfolio, and you track the performance of that over time. And it's quite a useful mechanism to have that for the for the analysts themselves because they it's a learning mechanism as a recommendation mechanism for portfolio managers and thinking about how to allocate capital. And what we find over time is, you know, the, the top three or four ideas coming from Key analysts who are really deep in the weeds generate a lot of outperformance, and that's the key. It's just being close to your business, really tearing it to pieces, understanding what it's worth, and buying at a good price. And that's really the lifeblood of the firm. So let, let's talk about, uh, again, another quote, the great misallocations in the market that skilled active managers can take advantage of. 
how often do these misallocations come along and how easy or difficult is it to identify them in, in real time? I think a lot of people forget that as an investor, you're a price taker. You're just waiting. You're just waiting right? for prices to give you the opportunity to buy at a discount to the, the true worth of the business. And so the critical component in terms of managing a portfolio or finding great ideas is flexibility because you are, you know, you're not dictating what the market does. You're just waiting. So having the ability for capital to move to the most dislocated ideas is absolutely essential. So if you go back and look at the history of our funds, sometimes we're very, very heavily invested in one country. Sometimes we have zero. That's exactly how it should be because inefficiencies aren't static. They move. Uh, right. And they evolve. So flexibility um, in order to be opportunistic to take advantage, are investors and clients patient enough for you to, you know, Warren Buffett famously said the nice thing about investing is there are no cold strikes. You can sit there with the bat on your shoulder and just wait for your pitch. I, I don't know how familiar you are with U.S. baseball, but that that normally it's a cold, game of cold balls and strikes. Buffett says you could – watch 100 pitches go by until the one you like is there. Are clients patient enough to say, hey, why are you sitting around in cash? There Aren't there opportunities? How, how does that work? So we, the, you know, the tough part of what we do is we have to run a portfolio of equities for our clients. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do is just find the best ones. And there's always the best ones, right? The market is <laughs> the market's very rarely narrow, so narrow that everything is efficiently priced and there's no opportunity. And if that is the case, then that's okay. You can just hold something that, that yield gives you 7% a year over time, and that's fine. Uh, but there's always opportunity, and it's just a question of finding it. Um, and it, you need uh, a lot of depth. Uh, that comes from the analysts looking at the different niches, and you need a lot of breadth. You need to just turn over a lot of stones and cover a lot of ground. So, so let's talk about that, because over the past, you know, either one or, or multiple years, it's been pretty much... You know, uh, it started out as FANG. Now some people are using the phrase Magnificent Seven. The, the seven largest tech stocks have been driving uh, about 25% market cap of the S&P 500, driving a lot of value creation. Can you look outside of those seven, or is it that seems to be the only game in town here? I'm not even sure what's in the seven. Can you tell me what's in the seven? Amazon, Apple, Tesla, NVIDIA, uh, maybe Facebook, maybe Microsoft, something like that. <laughs> something like that. I exactly. don't really pay much attention. To be <laughs> honest, right. I don't pay much attention to them. Yes. Uh, did I leave out Google? And I'm sure there's something else I'm forgetting. Uh, uh, that's not how I want to invest. No, However, no, exactly. if you're looking for opportunities and those seem to be driving so much of the index returns, how challenging is this environment? It's, or do you just pile into the, those seven? Uh, I mean, a lot of people have, right? Now that's the that's the challenge. Um, so two points I'd make. One, fang to magnificent seven, it changes, right? The basket right. changes and, uh, and, and it's just the next big thing. Two or three years ago, it was NFTs and all this sort of stuff. And now it's AI and, and, you, and, and large language models. And there's always something comes up, bust, and then it sort of emerges from the ashes. And they're all relevant new technologies, but you just don't want to get caught up too much in the You hype. forgot the metaverse. Between NFTs <laughs> and AI was the metaverse. The metaverse exactly. And I know that created a lot of value, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I'll give it time. Who knows? Uh, so th there's 3,500 investable stocks or more in the world for us. 
we treat them on a unit basis, right? In any one of those 3,500 stocks, you could see a big, big mispricing. And so the chances that we end up in the biggest seven stocks in the world are quite slim on that basis because what's the chance you're going to have the most inefficiency in the biggest seven stocks? Those are probably the most efficient stocks. They're probably the most efficient. Now, the two, the problem, as you say, you have to deal with is if they go through a long period of performing very well, then you, you, know, you have to stack up against that. Right. And that's the issue we've had in terms of if we look at the world on an equally weighted basis, we've added a lot of value for clients over the last 10 years. If we look for a cap-weighted basis, it's been much harder, much right. harder. <laughs> Either because we missed those opportunities, uh, they were fundamentally mispriced and we missed them, and I think there's a little bit of that in there, or they just did well, right? Their randomness and and uh, you know they hit, had a few hits, um, also, or the or the valuation went up, right, to to fairly extreme levels. So one of a combination of those three things have happened over periods of time. The last five years have been a good example of that. The late '90s a good example of that. You go back to the late '60s, you saw exactly the same dynamic. So you go through these periods. And you just have to be patient. As long as you're generating a good absolute return for your clients, I think uh, you know our clients are happy and they recognize you go through these big cycles. So you've talked about finding your edge, what makes your approach unique to you and, and the advantage you have. How do you find your edge? What can investors do to identify their own strategic or tactical advantage? So, I mean, edge is a tricky one, right? And everyone tries to define their edge. Mm-hmm. Everyone's trying to look for their edge. And I think it, uh, if it was so simple as to say, hey, do this, and then you've got an edge, then everyone would do it, and it wouldn't be an edge. So it has to be a number of things, and you have to balance you know, across a number of different variables. Uh, I would point to a few things. One, we talked about how, and this links to the, you know, the second part of the question, how does that, you know, an everyday investor develop an edge and how how should they think about investing? It's those three things. It's the three key variables. Number one, longevity. And that really comes down to ownership structure. You know, the really tough part of this business is succession. Mm -hmm. You build an asset manager. You build Bloomberg. You build any organization. How do you handle succession? And in asset managers, it's really difficult because you usually have a founder. Uh Founder builds the business up if they're successful. Then what? Then what? You know, next generation comes. Next generation, along. but how do they take the uh, you know take the ownership from the founder? Do they have to uh, uh, borrow money to buy him out? Right. Him or her out? Do they need to go public? You know, sell to uh, and and then that leads to other Private dysfunctions. Equity. There's, Could be, there's a lot of different ways, mm-hmm. um, but very few of them are sustainable perpetual solutions. Because you're gonna you know if you're selling to the next people, they need to, they have the same problem, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so the one thing you need to build into your organization is longevity. And so that's one thing we've done through the ownership, through the charitable foundation, which owns the business into per- perpetuity, mm-hmm. giving, giving you that stability and enabling the business to embed that long-term philosophy. Also, I mentioned uh, Orbis's fee structure is unique. Having uh, the an investment manager owned by a charitable foundation Fairly unique. I don't know many other companies that operate. The closest thing is Vanguard is a mutual, theoretically owned by their shareholders. But this is even more specific. This foundation owns the asset manager in perpetuity. Exactly. Yeah. And and it's mutually beneficial. One, you get that very long-term time horizon from an owner. Very stable, which is essential when you're making long-term investment decisions. Two... Yeah, the the foundation gets the the cash flow from the business to a degree mm-hmm. to uh, facilitate uh, its philanthropic work. 
So you get that nice symbiotic relationship and the incentive of the foundation is to make sure that underlying investment business is healthy and sustains over very long periods of time. So that's, it's very much embedded in that, the trustees of the foundation, that we need healthy underlying investment businesses because that's what drives the dividends, that drives the philanthropic activity over time. Uh, so long-term ownership is key. The other is excess returns. I've talked about the paper portfolio system is quite unique to what we do. Uh, every analyst having that ability to express themselves from very early on in their career and learn. And we can learn about them and all their foibles and all their biases over time. Uh, which is quite a big deal because then you get to sort of draw out what is a person's superpower, how can they contribute in the best way to the firm. Okay, so that would be the, on the on the return side. And then on the risk side, the fees really help with that, as we talked about, because they they make the, the uh, return series for the end client smoother, smoother bit, right? Yeah. And, and having less variance of return is, is important, you know, one of those three critical variables. The fourth one, of course, is client alpha or dollar-weighted alpha. Right. And that's alignment as well. The fees help with that. So so let's talk about what's going on in the world. Um, we've been in deep into this rate-rising environment and this inflationary environment. Um, how does that affect your ability to do your job? What do you need to do to adjust when the era of low rates and free capital suddenly goes away? Well, I mean, that's the key. You just hit on it. It's been free capital. And so we've seen a giant capital misallocation on the basis of rates being too low, long yields being too low. And, and there's been a raging debate, even in that period, are rates too low? Aren't we in an inherently deflationary environment? Right? Aren't we uh, demographics and technology and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Just, just because we're in a deflationary environment doesn't mean that rates have to be uh, on an emergency footing on zero. You can have 2 or 3% Fed funds rates and still have technologically induced deflation. Why, why are they mutually exclusive? 100% agree. And the other element is you can – there's a specific variable you can look at. Uh, that tells you that it was a giant inefficiency, and that is the term premium, right? which is now getting into the media a bit more. We see more and more about the term premium. So the term premium is embedded in the long bond, right? in the 10-year yield of a, a, a JGB or, or, a, or a, a treasury um, or a bund, and it is the extra return you should get for taking on time risk effectively. Right. Because that long bond should embed the expected inflation rate, the expected path of short-term real rates, and something else, and that something else should compensate you for the uncertainty in all those other variables. Right. Because you don't know what inflation is going to do. You don't know what real rates are going to do. So you need an extra bit of compensation, and that's, that's, back, that's backed out. It's like a risk premium, like an equity risk premium. You can back that out, and that term premium has been negative. Never before in history of tracking this, this variable has that gone negative. In the 60s, it was very low. In the 90s, it was very low. It's gone negative over the last five years. Absolutely incredible. And that tells you there's a huge mispricing in duration, a huge mispricing on the long end of the curve. So meaning, are you saying um, the long end of the curve uh, is, is now attractive and cheap? Uh, I would, no. You're no, saying the opposite. I'm saying the opposite. And the reason is because that term premium has been very negative over the last five years and still isn't positive. It's risen. Mm-hmm. from very, very negative levels, but it's still not positive. That has to be, in my opinion, positive. People disagree on this point. It has to be positive because it has to compensate you for taking time risk. That's the real time risk is the term premium. 
And I think it's fascinating. If you go back to the 60s and you look at when it was very low mm -hmm. through the late 60s and you go back to the late 90s, also very low, you see exactly the same dynamic that we've seen over the last five years. That is all the long duration stuff goes up, up, right. up, up. In the early 70s, you had the Nifty 50. Right. In the late 90s, you had the tech mania. Right. And then we've had all sorts of, you know, a bubble to an ex extreme proportions, mm -hmm. uh, especially on the long duration end especially on the long duration end. So that's led to this huge dislocation within asset markets where the long duration businesses have been trading at extraordinary multiples. And the short duration businesses, which are typically the very cash flow generative low growth ones, right. have been extremely depressed. And you could see that dynamic in the late 60s, you see it in the 90s, and it led to a very interesting thing, which was the companies whose share prices were very low stopped investing like the energy companies in the late 60s and right. the late 90s, they just stopped. They reduced CapEx enormously because the share prices were telling them, don't go out and grow. <laughs> just pay out your cash flow to us because we're not, we're not giving you any kind of rating. Right. Um, and, and it was the opposite for the high growth businesses. Those very high ratings were saying, okay, go and raise more capital. Your cost of capital is very low. Go and grow. So, so we've had this distortion caused by free capital and low rates uh, where is the biggest misallocation in allocations? A year ago, summer of 2022, we saw people piling into private credit and private debt and private equity. It, it felt like a crowded trade, a little bubblicious, and a year later, nothing's blown up, but clearly not, not as attractive uh, of a sector as it was. How does this impact public equities? So... What we've seen is the the top of that dynamic has happened. So in 2021 was the equivalent of March 2000. Right. And the top of, of, of the, the dot coms. Dot com and, and the early 70s, the top of the Nifty 50, I think. So we've passed that point. So we're just in a, a gradual corrective process. We've seen it before. We saw it through the 70s. We saw it through the 2000s. And we're just in that moment. And if you look at that gap between the valuations in the long and short duration end, it's closed. But it's not closed by very much. I think, you know, listen to Cliff Asnes, AQR, he say, okay, it was at the 99th percentile, now it's at the 70th or the 85th or some right. such, right? We so measure, cheaper, but not outright cheap. Uh, this is the relative attractiveness of the shorter end, the shorter duration end of the equity space. Mm -hmm. So this is more like the real economy, slower growth businesses. They are, on a relative basis, cheap. Very, very cheap versus where they had normally, not cheap versus 2021, that was the most extreme uh, huh. point. Uh, so that leaves us sort of in a place where I think you just see the con this dynamic continuing to play out. I would be concerned about uh, duration still. Now you could buy a one-year bond and you're practically getting the same yields, but you're taking a risk that, hey, maybe rates go lower if there's a recession next year. How do you, how do you operate around that uncertainty? So that's the cycle. And that's the, uh, you know, your short-term versus your long-term view. On a long-term view, you've got to embed the term premium into that long yield. Mm -hmm. On a short-term view, if you're smart, I'm not smart enough to do this, you can sort of try to play around recessions and slowdowns and rate cuts and, and uh, you'll, you know, you might make a bit of money on the duration end like that. Uh, but I, I still see that as the big dislocation within the equity market. So let's talk about equities. So value over growth, is it for a while value had come back with a uh, with a vengeance that seemed to have stopped for a while? And, and since I don't know, the lows in October 2022, uh, growth has done really well. Uh, 
how do you how do you look at those two spaces? You sound more like a value investor than a growth investor. Yeah. So let's start with that, and then we'll look around the world. So so what do you look at? What do you think of in terms of how value stocks appear versus growth stocks? So I would uh, I would have value stocks are synonymous with short duration, and I still think they look very cheap. So your value stocks are attractive uh, and, and getting back to that AQR measure they're pretty the, this, the dispersions are still very wide I think this is a, a cycle which is reflexive once you get to the top it starts to roll mm-hmm. um, and you know what the reason for that is uh, getting back to those those short duration old economy businesses the lower growth ones the value stocks if you like because they've had such low valuations through this cycle they haven't invested that drives not enough stuff into the real economy because you're not producing enough and it's like not enough primary energy and, and et cetera, et cetera. And that drives this kind of inflation impulse through, and we saw that in the 70s and we saw that in the 2000s. The 2000s, it wasn't quite as strong because you had a big labor arbitrage with China, but the underlying inflation was reasonable. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it pushes up the term premium. And as the term premium is going up, then this normalization of the relative valuation gap between the value stocks and the growth stocks starts to close. And you get that at the same time as these businesses are generating very, very healthy margins as well because pricing is good. Pricing is good and they're, they're using that free cash flow not to reinvest in the business because they're still worried about the low share prices. They're just paying it all out. So it's all going to the bottom line. It's all, it's all coming back to shareholders. That's where you, we're getting a lot of yield in the portfolio. Huh, interesting. What about geographically? Where where are you looking around the world that's attractive? I don't think there are any big geographical inefficiencies today. Japan's very interesting because they're going through a big cor- corporate governance change, uh, which is getting in the news. Right. right. It, it's also, look, over the past couple of years, uh, the Japanese stocks have seemed to really come alive since the pandemic. Uh, wh- what's driving it? Is it this corporate governance or is it just uh, the uh, they've been underperforming since 1989. That's a long time to run um, uh, a pretty poor basis. They're still below the the their bubble peak, which is kind of hard to imagine. Thirty years later, uh, imagine I think it took us 13 years to recover the Nasdaq dot com collapse down to about 1100 from 5000, and we passed that. Uh, the Nikkei is still way below where it was. Uh, what, what's happening in Japan? So, I mean, the, the, the reason why we're still way below that, that 30 year ago peak is because it was just absolutely extraordinary. There's never been a bubble like it. 4x the dot com or 5x the dot com, yes, something yeah, like that. Yeah, some, some multiple. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. And it was, um, you know, the, the lower quality businesses there were, were the ones that were getting the most expensive. It was the one, it was a balance sheet bubble almost uh, based uh-huh. on the price of land. So that was one reason why we've not about Another reason is the corporate governance in Japan has been awful. Too much cash on balance sheets, uh-huh. unproductive cash, too many cross shareholdings. They all hold bits of each other. No, no activist shareholders in Japan. No, it's very difficult to be an activist shareholder in Japan um, because it's a very consensus society and uh, you know, foreign shareholders coming in and doing their evil deeds aren't particularly welcome. What you have to do in Japan is you have to build a relationship with management over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. So we've been investing in Japan since the early 90s. We meet with management twice a year. 
a lot of different management teams across the economy. We talk to them, we understand them, we try to figure out, you know, try to help them with their business. We try to understand, you know, the reasons for why they're doing what they're doing. We gradually try to help them on the capital allocation side, nudge them to, okay, is it sensible to hold shares in all these other businesses? Because, you know, as an investor like us, number one, we're just we're not just owning you, we're owning everything. <laughs> we're just like owning an index. And in terms of capital efficiency, it's horribly capital inefficient because, you know, as soon as they start selling those cross shareholdings, that money starts coming out to shareholders that gets reallocated to businesses on the basis of their growth potential. And so it's really positive for the economy to unwind all of these and to use all this idle cash. Uh, Abenomics was the start of that. Uh That was, what, 2015, something like that? Yeah, almost a decade ago. Yeah, so that was the start, and that was a really good start. Uh, but recently, we've seen some meaningful change. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. So let's let's stay with Japan a little bit. When you look at activists in the U.S., you have companies like Apple doing dividends and share buybacks, even Berkshire Hathaway doing a share buyback. I, I kind of always felt that it wasn't so much the activists that drove those as the threat of an activist. Um, that's missing in Japan. Other than uh, Abenomics, would, would this have happened? Or would they just have continued to all cross-own each other and very unproductively sit with these um, assets on the balance sheet? I don't think this is activist-driven. I don't think it's the threat of activists or the presence of activists that are driving this change. I think it's very internal. In Japan. Yeah, and it had to be internal. It had to come from the institutions within Japan. This is a generational change, isn't it? I think so, yeah. You're seeing people at the Tokyo Stock Exchange have come out and told businesses that they really need to trade above book value. Why do you trade below book value? It's extraordinary. You know, you're not that implies that the market thinks you don't create any value as a firm. You're trading create negative value. If, creating if negative value. Right. Exactly. The replacement value. The what is that? Q. The replacement value 
uh, of the yep. company is less than what they're actually trading at. That that, that seems sort of absolutely uh, extraordinary. And some of these book values are understated. So I mean, it's remarkable uh, the valuation. So it's coming from the internal pressure. It's coming from the regulator. It's coming from the government. It's coming from the Tokyo Stock Stock Exchange. And when that starts to bite. For one or two companies, you start to see it proliferate because business in Japan is all about not sticking out too much. It's about consensus. It's about doing the right thing, uh, you know, societally as well as for your business. Right. And so, once you start seeing it start to roll, then it snowballs. And I think we're just at the front end of that now. Um, How long will that take to play out? Is this a decade? I think it's type a decade. Of- yeah, it's a decade because it takes a long time to unwind cross shareholdings. It takes a long time to you know, um, move the narrative and for that to continue to go. Um, but what we've seen is because we've been meeting with these management teams for decades now, we can kind of like benchmark it. What what does the change look like now versus five years ago, which is five years? Because it's been gradually improving over time. This is a step change. This is when we go and meet with management teams now, it's a meaningfully different conversation. It's a different tone. Now, the activists are jumping in there. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's particularly helpful because it's happening by itself. Right. And if you know, you're know you you're coming as an activist, waving your flag, going in the newspaper, you almost sort of like you risk this delicate situation right. <laughs> uh, breaking what is quite a nice trend. Um, How significant is the currency offset with, you know, yen versus the dollar has been a, a tough trade. How important is a currency hedge on, on a Japanese investment if you're not a, a local in Japan? So the currency hedge is very helpful. So, you know, you look, we, we own a business called Impex, which is one of the biggest energy companies in Japan. They're now paying out much more of their earnings than they used to. So that's nice. You've got a 4% dividend yield and a 5% buyback yield. So it's a 9% total yield in yen. And they're still paying out about half the amount that a Shell or a or BP does. So Impex. Impex, yeah. So it stands for International Petroleum Exploration or something like that. Impex. Mm-hmm. It's been around for uh, a long time. Um, and they're mostly LNG. And they have these big LNG fields off the coast of Australia uh, supplying all of Asia with uh, liquefied natural gas. Huh. Um, so what's interesting there is you get that 9% yield, but it's in yen. Uh, if you hedge to dollars, of course, because you've got that big, big interest rate spread today, right? You know that 9 goes to 13. Wow. And so that's cash yield, real cash yield. Now, there's some you know uh, nuance there in a the sense it's kind of a dollar business as well. So if right. changes in the yen will inf- impact the underlying business. But that is a good, solid yield that you're getting in your hand. What's the return of markets been over the long term? 7%. Right. And that 7% has come from growth and yield. A little bit of yield, a little bit, little bit of growth. That's where your return comes from. If you can get a 13% pure cash yield with an inflation protected, which is inflation protected, is real. It's real because of the rate. price of natural gas will rise and fall with exactly, inflation. Exactly. Uh, that is phenomenal, right? So why, you know, that's where it comes back to AI. Do you need to make a decision on NVIDIA's future here at this valuation? Or can you go out there and find these types of opportunities? So the risk, of course, is the Magnificent Seven keep rising and the market right. does 20 and you're doing 13. But a 13 is, is a great return. It's a right. great return. That, that's a low, that's a pretty, sounds like a lower risk sort of trade, even if it's not matching what the biggest AI uh, funds are, are doing. What about the rest of the world? Let's talk a little bit about emerging markets. Uh, what's appealing there? Um, emerging markets are dominated by China. Uh, that's the problem you have as right. an emerging market investor. There are actually specific indexes and funds that are EMX China, just the way there are 
developed world ex-US. So if you don't want to be the US develop, dominates developed world, China d- dominates the EM, arguably, are they even really still an EM? That's, that, right. that's a whole nother discussion. But outside of China, well, let's start with China. Is China investable or are they attractive? Uh, China's investable, I think. Um, and it's a question of risk premium. What risk premium do you get for investing in China? You know, the big issue you have is think about think about Alibaba today. It's come down a long way. It looks right. quite interesting. Uh, it looks very cheap on a standalone basis. If it traded in the U.S., I think everyone would be all over it at this sure. valuation. Um, the problem is, you know, if you think about if you had a spare two hundred billion lying around, okay, would you go and spend that on buying the business outright as a mm-hmm. long term investment? buying Alibaba for the next 30 years. And right as a long-term investor, you have to think that way because you're buying a piece of a business. Right. That's your, you know, that's how you have to think. And so when I think about it in those terms, it's okay. You need to be aligned with the the uh, the overall um, system. And that's the problem you have when investing in China. Is It's just that there's a lot of uncertainty around, as we know, the geopolitics and the friction in terms of the different ideologies of the I US. mean, their, their CEO disappeared for eight, nine months because he seemed to have gotten into a, a little bit of a disagreement with Xi. And to me, I don't know how you put capital at risk in a country where the government can say, we're, we're not happy with your operations and so we're gonna throttle you for the next four quarters and then we'll we'll see how you behave after i agree yeah you have to be very very careful if you're looking broadly at emerging markets korea is very interesting uh-huh. obviously sits right next to china uh, but if you look at korea historically they've often been a japan fast follower you know think about the export markets that japan built in the 60s and the 70s uh, autos electronics korea sure. really just followed that model and did right. it wonderfully well and so the noises we're getting out of Korea are very similar to the noises we've been hearing out of Japan over the last five to six years. Corporate governance reform, a balance sheet efficiency, capital allocation, um, all the things that put this big discount on Korea and put the big discount on Japan prior to you know the last few years mm-hmm. exist. And so Korea is, I think, a... Uh, uh, Japan a few years ago, and, and, you, and you've got more upside there. We've, we've been hearing a lot of noise about India lately. Any thoughts on the subcontinent there? An, another billion people waiting to move to the middle classes. What, what's happening there? Uh, India is a an in, really interesting uh, area in terms of the geopolitics, in terms of the, the population story, in terms of the, you know, the per capita wealth growth potential, uh, but it's also a pricey market. Those, those businesses are not priced cheaply. Mm-hmm. And so you pay up for the promise, and that makes it less interesting in my mind. Whereas if you go to an Indonesia, mm-hmm. which is similarly uh, low per capita wealth, similar growth rate, similar productivity growth. And lots and lots of people. Lots and lots of people. Um, you pay you know five, six times earnings for some of these businesses. You're getting sort of 10 11% dividend yield, yields out with uh, sort of low teen growth rates. Um, if you go back to 2005 when I joined Orbis, uh, the BRICS was all the rage, right? right. BRICS, BRICS, BRICS was that was the AI of the time. BRICS. So, so Brazil, Russia, India, China, none of them have done especially well since then. They haven't in terms of their stock market. No, in terms of their economies, their economies have grown reasonably yes. well. You know, Russia aside, and South Africa is in there as well, right? And Russia was actually seeing some growth until seeing some growth. they 
decided to invade right. Ukraine That's and a became a pariah. Thing. So the, the the story around emerging markets in 2005 was absolutely right. You had growth rate in population. That's come true. You had productivity growth. That's come true. What hasn't come true? Investment returns. Why has that not come true? Because everybody wanted a piece of them. Everybody wanted a piece of them. So whilst the earnings growth has been good for the economy overall, the per share earnings growth has been absolutely awful because the number of shares has gone up and up and up. Issue right. capital for all this capital coming in. What have you got today? You've got apathy. Nobody wants to invest in Indonesia, um, which is great on two sides. You get cheap valuation, but you also get the businesses that are in Indonesia and dominant. They don't have any capital to uh, compete with. So their growth rate on a per share basis is actually higher than it was when everyone was excited 20 years ago. So I think that you know there are really good opportunities. Brazil is another example. In emerging markets, you're seeing cheap assets and uh, and you know reasonably good backdrop. Huh, really interesting. Before I get to my favorite questions, let me just throw a, a, a modest curveball since we've been talking so internationally. You're based in Bermuda. How does that affect your outlook? Um, does it affect your outlook? If, if so, how? Is that a location an advantage or, or a disadvantage? I would be afraid. It's beautiful and sunny every day. I would just throw money at the market all the time and not worry about anything. <laughs> yeah, the outlook's very nice because we've got this lovely view from the of, of the bay. Um, the The decision to set up in Bermuda was fa- the founders' original decision, based not on tax. Everyone assumes tax. It's based on the fact that it was well developed and big financial hub, big financial hub, and extremely convenient. So where do you where do you get to combine those two things? Convenient in the sense that what are the frictions in Bermuda? Very little. You can live right next to the office. You right live right next to the kids' schools. Right next to the dentist. Right next to the, so anything you need to do is right, right there. There's there's very little friction in your life if right. you live in Bermuda. And so, but when you if you want that, typically you can't combine that with international business of the highest quality. Uh, but Bermuda is one of the few places. Well, they've been can. a giant financial hub for decades, insurance. And I know Caymans are really thought of more as the hedge fund venture capital space. But Bermuda has been a huge financial hub for, for a long time. And what are you, two hours to New York and uh, 45 minutes to Miami? Exactly, yeah. Two hours to most of those sort of East Coast cities in the U.S. and only six hours to London as well. Not, not, too, not, not too shabby at all. So, so let's jump to my favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Uh, starting with, tell us what you're streaming. What have you been watching or listening to these days? Uh, so we, my wife and I just started watching After Party. Have you ever mm-hmm. heard of that? I saw the first season. Oh, you, oh, okay. So it's not brand new then. All right. I have no idea when these things come out. But uh, that was good. Yeah, yeah. fun. Yeah, it's fun. It's very well written. It's a uh, little bit of music, great script. Ted Lasso, we enjoyed. Succession, you know, all the, all the big ones. The ones that I think uh, maybe you wouldn't have heard of, because I'm British and I like these sort of niche comedy right. series. Afterlife with Ricky Gervais. Love it. Ah, okay. It, by the way, that was a huge hit in the States. Oh, is that right? Okay. Uh, okay. For, well, he's had a co- The Office, and then he's had a few on HBO. And Afterlife, very touching, very well done. It was. He, he's delightful. Really, yes, really great. Comedian, really great writer. Another one, IT Crowd. Have you ever heard of that? Now, this is a no. proper geeky comedy. Let's go. IT yeah. Crowd. IT Crowd. It's about an IT department in the basement of a business in some London suburb. Uh, yeah, you have to you have to you know be be very geeky to enjoy that one. 
If you, if you, this sounds a little bit like Silicon Valley. Did you, did you see that? Oh, I never saw that one. Yeah. So that was on HBO, uh, and and it's geeky and tech. And if you like Silicon Valley, I, I've been rep- recommending to people on Apple TV, Mythic Quest, which is about a game developer. Same sort of geeky, quirky characters. Lots of cursing. Lots of fun. Sounds good. That does sound good. Uh, and Red Dwarf was the other. That Red Dwarf is a very, very old uh-huh. British sci-fi comedy. Uh, it's been one of my favorites. If you watch it for the first time, you'll think, wow, this is dated. Right. Because, you know, when you see the spaceships, you can see the string attached to it. <laughs> right. Uh, but the, the one-liners are just great. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of those. Uh, a so, lot, a lot of- so when I first moved out of the city, I used to get BBC um, television and it wasn't available on cable. I had to get satellite, um, partly because I-, I was a junkie for Doctor Who. And there were a couple of other sitcoms like Coupling was hilarious, yes, absolutely was, hilarious. I remember that. It, you, you, you watch Friends afterwards and you realize how milk toast it is <laughs> compared to how nasty and funny and raunchy <laughs> Coupling was. But Doctor Who is now going through another is big it, set of changes, so it? I'm I'm no spoilers, but I I'm I got most of the season teed up, and I'm just going to plow through it oh, over the holidays. I didn't realize that was so popular over here. Yeah. I don't know how popular it is amongst a certain group of sci-fi geeks. It's required viewing, okay. um, but they, it's been really interesting, and and they've continued to keep it fresh and intriguing. So so let's go to our second uh, question. Uh, tell us who your early mentors were, who who helped shape your career. I, I struggle with this one. Um, you know, for knowledge, I always that my philosophy has always been to go to people who really know about a, the specific thing you want to understand better. Mm-hmm. So that's papers and it's books and it's just finding experts. Uh, but I think the key. Uh, so I had to look up what is mentor. Uh-huh. What is a mentor? And I think the key thing there is trusted. Is trusted counselor. That you go to because you know they have your best interests at heart. Right. right. And that for me is very much close friends, family. It's my brother. It's my close colleagues. It's, you know, the, the Gray family, uh, and mm-hmm. Orbis, uh, Adam Carr, etc. Um, people who you know have your back, basically. Got it. Uh, let's talk about some books. What are some of your favorites and what are you reading right now? Uh, well, I went through, I go through phases. So, I mean, I went through a long phase of, of factual books, learning books. So Bernstein's books, uh, he's a financial historian against William the gods. William Bernstein, yep. Oh, uh, Peter Bernstein. Peter Bernstein, yeah, against mm-hmm. the gods and uh, Power of Gold and all those good ones. Taleb was one I picked up earlier, which is, you know, understanding the role of chance in life. Fooled by randomness. Yeah. Alchemy of Finance by George Soros, you know, the, all, the, all the classics, Jim Rogers' books. Um and then fun business books like Rogue Trader is such a good book, written by Nick Leeson. Uh-huh. It brought down Bearings Bank. Right. Fascinating story of uh, how you can slip into um, those types of situations, right? Not starting out as somebody who, <laughs> who in any way wants to cause harm or a bad person. You just end up taking a little bit too much risk, and then you step into some gray area, and then you step a little bit further to try to get that loss back, and it, and it snowballs. Fascinating story. Um that's rogue, and then there's a whole bunch of stuff like bad blood and all those sort of. That really, fun. those are really fascinating. You, yeah. you know, you, we talked earlier about the theory of poker. Did you ever read Annie Duke's Thinking in Bets? 
Yes, I mean, that is that is exactly aligned with um, how I think everybody should think about investing and poker. You know, it's, it's, it's all about thinking about the process rather than the outcome. And that's what poker teaches you right. because it drums that into you over and over and over and over again that it's the process, not the outcome, because the outcome is so different. Right. <laughs> the outcome time. is semi-random. It's semi-random. Uh, Ma- Michael Mobison talks about the the uh, impact of um, uh, of luck and skill in in investing in sports and business, and it turns out at a professional level, the the skill it's very counterintuitive. When the skill level is that high, sometimes a random bounce, a little bit of luck, has an outside um, impact because everybody's playing at such a high level. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's dead right. Really, really quite interesting. And our, our final two questions, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad interested in a career in uh, investment, fund management, et cetera? I found this one, I find all your questions hard, but uh, this one I found hard as well, um, in the sense that the more I you know, have interact with people I work with and other people, you, the more you recognize that everyone is so different. Mm-hmm. Everyone has such different characters, such different traits, and advice to one person is completely useless when applied to another person. You have to tailor it so much. Um, so the one thing I came up with, which I think is universal, is uh, not things like follow your passion, which you know is powerful for some but not others. It's act with integrity. Uh, it's that old adage of um, you know trust is hard earned, but easily lost right mm-hmm. that's the you know, and if you act with integrity through your career through your life and interacting with everybody around you then i think you can't go far wrong and our final question what do you know about the world of investing today you wish you knew back uh in the early 90s when you were first getting started and, and this can't be by apple <laughs> well it's not uh, you know, by Apple in this universe, if you if we get to put you, <laughs> if I put true. you in a time machine that's and send true. you back to 1990, yeah, that's how you I don't know if it's the same exact universe. Oh, that's true. Oh, now we're into right? parallel we're universes. We're going to get into multiple <laughs> theories. That's the problem with time travel is, you know, the butterfly effect and everything else. So not simply, by the way, if you would have bought Apple, I think from 1990 to 2004, you were flat. That's absolutely which, right. Which yeah. is which is kind of crazy. That's absolutely and and the little things that went right there that led them on this path right. to your to, to your parallel universe point. So, um, I struggle with this again. I th- I think maybe this is a cop out. I wouldn't tell myself. Uh, you know, if I was at a time machine, I would tell myself absolutely nothing. And I think the uh, the values in the struggle, basically. You internalize lessons if you learn them yourself. Right? Right. Even if it's you. It's the path, not it's the, the path. destination. It's exactly, exactly right. So I think I would uh, just say, look, you know, make the best decision you can at the time with all the information you have and have no regrets. Right. I, I like that. Uh, Graham, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Graham Foster. He is Portfolio Manager at Orbis Holdings. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 500 or so we've done over the past nine years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Barry underscore Ritholtz as I patiently await 
access to my actual account at Ritholtz. Follow all of the Bloomberg family of podcasts on Twitter at podcast. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. My audio engineer is Rich Subnani. My director of research is Sean Russo. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Anna Luke is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.